Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Uh, you are so good and so kind to us. Uh, thank you for this lesson from the life of Joseph. Uh, there are so many things we can learn and so many similarities we're going to see. Uh, would you please, through your spirit, uh, pick out one thing uh, that would stick with each one of us tonight as we go from here? Uh, something from your word, something we can hold on to for this coming week. Would you do that, please? And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you've got a hand. Uh, I don't have a handout. May I have a handout? So several years ago, um, we've, we've been through this uh, maybe five, maybe six times. I can't quite remember. Anyway, a time or two ago, Stephen, who sits at the back table, asked if he could draw a cartoon uh, from this lesson, and <laughs> so this is what he drew. Uh, you see Pharaoh there and uh, the cupbearer and the baker. Anyway, funny, you know the can of peanuts that open the snakes come out? Okay. I thought it was funny. It's really funny. So we've kept it in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was good. All right. Last lesson in the book of Genesis. Get ready. Uh, I'll hit it again at the end. Next week is Job. Job. Now, next week we're only going to do the first two chapters. If you are wise, you will read beyond the first two chapters. Try to get halfway. Because then the next week we'll do the rest. Okay, so we'll do Job next week. Let's finish Genesis, the family tree of faith. So many great lessons from the life of Joseph. One of the things I've been trying to teach you is to think in terms of the Toledot. This is how Moses laid out the book of Genesis. And I encourage you to think of it as whatever became of. So whatever became of Terah. Remember we had... 1 through 11, whatever became of the, you know, we had the heavens and the earth, and then whatever became of the heavens and the earth, and then whatever became of Adam, and all of those things, and then whatever became of Terah. Well, Abraham became of Terah, and Abraham received the Abrahamic covenant. And our lesson for that night was we learned that faith means living without scheming. So that was the Toledot of Terah. Then we looked at, well, whatever became of Isaac and how Isaac started great, but didn't finish so well. His spiritual complacency led to his decline. And out of Isaac came Jacob. So whatever happened to Isaac, we've got two, two of the patriarchs in there. Jacob wasted 30 years of his life resisting and wrestling God. We looked at that last week. And so Jacob... Whatever became of Jacob is actually the story of Joseph. And so whatever became of Jacob, several things became of Jacob, but one of the things that became of Jacob was Joseph. And one of the great lessons from Joseph is the way up is the way down. Uh, seems to be sort of a biblical principle if you think of Philippians 2 and think of the Lord. Uh, he left heaven to come down here and humbled himself and became lowly, and yet 
He will, uh, he has a name that is above every other name, and every knee will bow to him. And so the way up is the way down. And we're going to learn that one of the lessons we'll learn from the life of Joseph. So here's the big lesson for tonight. God's leaders must first become God's servants. And there is an unwritten curriculum in God's school of hard knocks. Uh, I don't know about you, so when I did my undergraduate program uh, in aerospace engineering, I had 122 hours. That was the, the bachelor's, 122 hours. It's probably standard, I don't know, 122. We had a list uh, of which we could take electives. You know, so electives are supposed to be whatever you want to take. Well, we had a list of electives. There were certain classes they weren't going to let us take because they're like, those are too easy. And so even on our electives, it was like they were almost required because even though we got to pick our electives, (laughs) we didn't really get to pick. We had to pick off a very short list. So I had 122 required hours, uh, maybe 12 hours of that was electives, for my bachelor's. My master's at Dallas Seminary was also, now you're thinking, a master's is about 30 hours. That's what I would be thinking. It is 122 hours. Now, that's the four-year version. Uh, That's what Ted has, Cody, Jonathan Murphy, who spoke this morning, uh, myself. 122 hours, and probably again, There's probably a few more than 12, but uh, not many electives. There's a lot of required courses in that 122 hours. Add on another 32 hours for my doctorate, and so I have over 150 hours of graduate-level classes. No, no, that's where you gasp. (laughs) Or you say, oh, My goodness, gracious sakes alive, that's a lot of hours. But do you know where I've learned many of the best lessons? The unwritten curriculum. In the school of hard knocks. I don't know, maybe you've been enrolled in some of those classes too. Uh, They're great classes once you're finished with them. They are not great when you're going in to those, uh, those classes that you say, I didn't sign up for this class. And the Lord says, I know, but I signed you up. You had some available time, and I went ahead and put that into your schedule for you. And so tonight, we're going to find out that this is actually one of the great ways that God uses to train uh, his people, his servants, especially those he might use in some leadership capacity. You say, well... He might not ever use me, or he's done using me in a leadership capacity. I don't know. Do you still have families? Maybe they're smaller than they were, but do you still have families? Do you still have families who might be a little bit scattered, but maybe you're the matriarch or the patriarch of your family, and maybe there are some leadership lessons in there? Maybe you're still in the workplace, and you think, Well, I don't know if I'm a leader at my workplace. Can you be a leader? (laughs) You can do this for sure. Can I be a leader in my cubicle? Could I be a leader in my 
you know, whatever your department means or looks like. Maybe it's two people. Maybe it's 200 people. There's lots of ways you can be a leader. Don't just think of there's, you know, there's one definition or one picture of what a leader looks like. Probably, if we sat down and talked, I would imagine that every single person in this room is a leader in some area or another in your life right now. So this lesson doesn't just apply to all those people. It applies to you too. Every place you're going to be or are a leader. Now, Joseph is a man, and so this is a man being prepared by God. But, of course, this applies equally to women. So a man being prepared by God. Joseph's story starts off with a very brief description of Joseph. And I think that is in chapter 37. So chapter 37, Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. Verse 2 begins the Toledot. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17, he often tended his father's flocks. So he's a shepherd. So he, uh, he does his stuff and he, you know, I'm not sure his brothers are all that happy with him. Uh, Joseph reports to his, father's, uh, to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing probably not winning him a ton of popularity points with his brothers. Uh, We see favoritism entering back into the picture. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, which would signify that he is really the overseer. It isn't just a, hey, wear this when you get cold. He would wear this as a sign or a symbol of his authority um, on his father's behalf. Okay. So his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Now, Joseph, at 17... Um, might have done better to not tell anyone, but, you know, that's, uh, that's not what he did. He says, listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. <laughs> Pretty good thing for a 17-year-old who's just gotten this cool new robe to say to his brothers. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. (laughs) This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, 
His father wondered what the dreams meant. Good for Jacob. He's thinking. Well, you know the story. Uh, He goes out and he finds his brothers, and uh, they're not really very happy with him. And so they come up with an idea. Uh, First, they decide they're going to kill him. And then they decide, well, why should we do that? Let's just sell him. And so they sell him to some Ishmaelite traders who take him, sorry, Midianite traders who take him down to Egypt. Oh, no, they did sell him to Ishmaelite traders, and the Midianite traders arrived. No, 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 wrong. 36. Read verse 36, Bill. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders. There it is, Midianites. Okay, they arrive in Egypt and they sell Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Well, you know what happens happens there. First, Joseph was enrolled in an unwritten course, unwritten curriculum course called the Pit 101. You remember your 101s? Right, those introductory level courses, you know, they got harder as you went on. You got up to, whatever, 401 or 501 or some of those. But this is 101, the pit. If you were going to look at God's syllabus for this, you remember in those college manuals it said, here's the course and here's the description of the course and maybe here's the purpose of the course. And so the course description it's a, it's a course that you're given no advance warning. It's thrust upon you. Just like Joseph didn't see this coming. His brothers decide what to do with him, and they throw him into the uh, cistern, which happened to be empty. And a cistern, I don't know, when you go to Israel, you'll see how deep the cisterns are. There's really no way out. You you can't get yourself out. And so Joseph, who's given no advance warning and is thrown into the cistern, with that action, he is enrolled in 101. In the cistern is a place of despair without the right perspective. Joseph doesn't know what to think right now. And it's a place from which he couldn't rescue himself. You can't get out of these cisterns without help, unless it has steps. This one obviously didn't. So he can't get out of this place himself. But God has enrolled him in course 101. Why is it a required class? To remind Joseph that God had a plan for his life. To get Joseph to look up, it's the only direction he could have looked, pray, and seek God. And to turn Joseph's life in God's direction. So Joseph is enrolled in 101, and he begins going through the classwork of that, which involves being rescued and sold hauled off to Egypt, and sold again to Potiphar. Well, when he gets to Potiphar's house, God enrolls him in 201. Course name, Potiphar's house. Description, 
It's a public place like a workplace. It's a place where Joseph's life overlapped the unbelieving world. So Joseph is living in Potiphar's house and had control or administrative responsibility and duties over all of what Potiphar owned. So he is right in the heart of an unbelieving place. Some of you may work in places like that. It's a place where Joseph is watched, where he's in the fishbowl. How does this God follower respond and react to the normal things that happen to people in workplaces? So Joseph is in the fishbowl. Why is it a required class? To prove or test Joseph's faith and integrity. How is that done? Well, with a test or a temptation. You know, it's funny. People always say, um, you know, does God tempt me? God never tempts you. God tests you. He never tempts you. That's the other guy's job, to tempt you. You say, well, what's the difference? So if you are Ford and you have an F-150, you are going to test that truck to show everyone how strong and resilient and powerful this vehicle is. Ford testing a Ford vehicle is a test. Chevy gets a hold of an F-150. They're going to tempt it. (laughs) They are going to drive that F-150 into the ground to show that it's not all it was cracked up to be. Chevy is out basically to wreck and ruin Ford's truck, whereas Ford is testing the truck to show you how strong it is. That's the difference between a test and a temptation. When God tests you, he's testing you to show how strong and resilient you are. When the evil one gets a hold of you, he's going to tempt you to wreck you and to ruin you. That's the difference between a test and a temptation. So why is Joseph enrolled in this class? To prove, to test his faith and integrity so that he will come through. Not so that he will be wrecked and ruined. It's so that he will come through it with flying colors. So one of the reasons God sends him to Potiphar's house is for temptation and testing. Another reason is to promote his spiritual maturity. How will he handle this circumstance? What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? Can he be drawn away to sin or not? So we're going to find out. But his, we're going to look at his spiritual maturity in Potiphar's house. It's also to prepare him for future service. After the wife does her little thing and catches Joseph, and, and Joseph is now put into the prison where the palace prisoners go, um, there's no record that Joseph ever says, now wait a minute, my turn to speak. 
Let me tell you what really happened. Joseph never opens his mouth. James reminds us that one of the hardest things to control is our tongue. I don't know if that applies to you. Kind of does to me every once in a while. So it's a required class because it's going to involve some kind of testing or temptation. It's going to involve his witness to this whole entire um, world. And it's going to show what his tongue is made of. You know, it's great. We stop here. We'll do some applications later, but... um, how do you handle temptation? I don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't know what it is for you. It's just a question. It's a self-evaluation, a self-assessment question. How are you handling temptation? Is it a test or is it a temptation? How about your maturity, your witness? Does your, wherever your world overlaps with the unbelieving world, and I don't know where that is for you, but wherever that is, uh, when they get to see you, uh, how's your witness? It's just a great question to remind us, uh, what do they see? Do they see someone different? Or do they see someone who looks pretty much the same as they do? And so they they go, I guess I could be a Christian. I guess maybe I am. I'm just like that person. They just do what I do. I just do what they do. No difference. So how about your witness? Your tongue, yeah, we're not going to talk about that too much. I don't like talking about the tongue. Learning to hold our tongues. is a, a great uh, sign of maturity as well as service, holding your tongue. So God enrolls Joseph in the pit, gets him into a cistern where all he can do is look up and pray, and God is going to take control of his life and redirect Joseph's life in a direction Joseph had not planned. He takes him to Potiphar's house. He's doing a great job, and then all of a sudden, here comes Mrs. Potiphar, and she tries to seduce him. But he successfully navigates that uh, test. He preserves his witness. He's got a great sentence in there, which is great for all of us in times of temptation. When he says, uh, let's see, oh, verse, chapter 39, verse, well, started at 8. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. 
Where's the first place he looks? Up. This would be a great sin against God. Well, he navigates 201, and that leads him to the next class he has to enroll in, and that is called 301, the prison. Congratulations, you've gone from supervising your father's sons and flocks and herds. You've gotten out of that pit. You had a great thing going at Potiphar's house, but that kind of blew up in your face. And so now you're in prison. What is the prison? So you know that Potiphar comes home, and he, Potiphar is furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. I mean, are you kidding me? Can you, can you put yourself in Joseph's place? You're 17. You've just gotten this great promotion from daddy. You got to share the good news with your brothers. <laughs> They're not thinking so much of it. So they throw you in a pit. What did I do to deserve this? Nothing. You get sold off to Egypt. You get sold into Potiphar's house. You, you go... Uh, okay, and you just start, you start working, and people begin to recognize that God is with you. What a great witness you have. And then next thing, here comes Potiphar's wife, and the whole thing gets wiped out. And what happens to you? You go back home. No, you go to prison for something you didn't do, and you're in prison, and you say, gosh, I wonder how long this was. Joseph goes, well, he gets the coat, right? We're told, the beginning of this Toledot, he's 17. When does Joseph start serving Pharaoh? At the age of 30. My math friends, that is 13 years. 13 years. Now, he wasn't in the pit very long. Potiphar's house and the prison, at cl close to 13 years, a little bit of time in the, in the pit. Wow. I need you to just drink that one in. 13 years, Joseph, at least some of that is in prison. Unbelievable. The prison is a private place. It's a dungeon. And you think, well, Joseph didn't have it too bad, I don't think. Seems like he was in charge. So, you know, maybe he put extra straw in his, you know, his little mattress or something. Turn to Psalm 105, and we're given a little bit of interesting information in verses 17 through 22. 
Psalm 105 kind of is a psalm with uh, a lot of history of Israel in it. Starting in 17, Then he, God, sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Jacob, Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Here's what they're doing to Joseph. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until, what? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I don't know about you, having those metal things around your ankles and a metal thing around your neck. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Then Pharaoh sent for him and set him free. The ruler of the nation opened his prison door. Joseph was put in charge of all the king's household. He became ruler over all the king's possessions. Was Joseph's life great? No. Not at all. He is in a prison or a dungeon. At least part of the day, his feet have those iron things around, uh, around his ankles, and he has an iron thing around his neck, and he's chained to a wall. I don't know how long he's in Potiphar's house. Let's say two or three years. So let's say he's, he's down to 10 years in prison. Sounds like a great life, doesn't it? And he's not even guilty. The private place, a dungeon, where he felt chained up. He didn't just feel chained up, he was chained up and walled in. He can't escape from this dungeon, by the way. A place where he felt alone, out of sight, and forgotten. Imagine this, his reward for righteous behavior is this. His reward for righteous behavior is a prison with things around your ankle, things around your neck, chained to a wall, at least part of the day. Never cleared of these charges, by the way. Joseph is never cleared. A private place where he was chained up and walled in, where he felt alone, out of sight, and forgotten. Why was it a required class? Why would God enroll him in this school of hard knocks class? Perhaps in 101, God tested his surrender. He tested Joseph's grip on his own plans. In 201, he tested Joseph's fidelity. Can he be drawn away or driven away? In 301, as Psalm 105 told us, God is refining his character. And you say, how is that happening? Well, the prison is a place where Joseph learns to desire God more than a leadership position, a role, or a function. Do you remember what he does when the cupbearer and the 
the baker, chief baker, get thrown into jail, right? And he interprets their dreams. And he says, you know, in three days, both of you are going to, these dreams will come true. And he tells the cupbearer, hey, by the way, when you get out, yo, remind them I'm here because I've been forgotten. What happens? The cupbearer forgets. (laughs) The prison is a place where Joseph finally abandons trying to nudge the arm of providence. That's a a loose quote from R.T. Kendall. He's got a great book on Joseph. I mean, is this amazing? Joseph's righteous behavior gets him thrown in prison. He, for all the right reasons, is saying to the cupbearer, hey, tell Pharaoh I'm still here. Let me out. And God says, I see that. Two more years. Two more years, Joseph. Your character's not where I need it to be yet. You're still looking to nudge my arm instead of waiting on me. It's a place where Joseph learns to have contentment without credit or recognition. It's the place out of which he'll be prepared to stand before a king as his servant. There's a man being prepared by God. The pit, Potiphar's house, and the prison, 101, 201, 301. Finally, the day comes when Joseph is released, and he begins to become a man used by God in Pharaoh's palace. This is amazing to me when I think about this person, Joseph. Uh, He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been hurt even for doing his job well. His reputation has been defaced by a false accusation of which he's never been cleared. He's been hurt by the forgetfulness of others. Yet he's gracious, humble, and forgiving. And he carries no grudges. Selah. This is an amazing person, Joseph. Quick little aside lesson. The bitter cannot bless others. The unforgiving are only shackling themselves with a ball and chain. If unforgiveness is an acid that you hold in a bottle, it's an acid that destroys the bottle it's being held in. Joseph is gracious, humble, and forgiving. You say, well, how do you get that? Well, sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, or or, sorry, 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 next, next. We've got to go to... 
41, two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile, and so he has two dreams. And the chief cupbearer spoke up and said, oh, golly, I was supposed to remember somebody. This fellow down in the dungeon can tell you your dream. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the prison, verse 14. 15, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I've heard it, I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. What does Joseph say? I would have said, yeah. Joseph says, it is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Amazing the transformation that's happened in Joseph from a maybe just an immature 17 year old to a very mature, very useful to God servant. It just took 13 years and three courses Joseph never knew he needed that turned out to be the most important courses in his whole entire life. So Joseph gets out, he explains the dream, and becomes second in command in all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. Amazing. Let me take one little rabbit trail and talk about uh, forgiving others uh, when his brothers come. At first, he's mean to him, right? He's mean to him. And he speaks partially to him, and he says, you know, you'd better do this or you get nothing. And what do they, what do they say? How do they respond to this? Kind of, you know, well, they're kind of pointing in lots of different directions. And so Joseph comes up with this idea, hey, I'm going to keep all of you. Nah, just keep one of you. Give me Simeon. And uh, the rest of you go back. You're free. And then he plants a little money in their sacks, and they kind of go ballistic over that. Uh, Problem is, if they stay home, now that they've discovered the money, if they stay home, they're thieves. You're like, if I had that one guy who discovered it, why didn't they just turn around and go back? Oh, guess who's never going home? Ever. You're caught, you dummy. You went back. Now you're all captured. (laughs) And none of you are going back to see daddy. So these guys are between a rock and a hard place. So they decide, well, we're going to be thieves. We're going to head up to to home, feed our family. And then they find out that they've all got money in their sacks. And they're going, okay, what is going on here? Maybe God knows what we did. Or maybe God is beginning to discipline us or punish us for that. Okay. So they finally run out of food. God makes the famine long enough that he basically drives the boys back down there. How, but to get there, they've had to take Benjamin. Now, uh, Rachel had two sons. 
Joseph, and Benjamin. Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. All he's got left from Rachel is Benjamin. I am not sending Benjamin down to Egypt. Well, then we're going to die because we're not going to get any food. He told us if we didn't come back with, with our younger brother. Well, why'd you tell him you had a younger brother? Well, he just asked us questions. We didn't know what he was going to do. Oh, golly. So who's the first one who stands up to say something? Reuben. Reuben gives a magnanimous offer. If he hurts Benjamin or kills Benjamin, you can kill my sons. <laughs> oh, way to go, Reuben. <laughs> Why does Judah get the job? Judah says, my life for his. So Jacob finally says, go on back. Take everybody back down there. And the second time is different than the first. Now he still is testing them because he's trying to find out where they're at in what they've done. Because if they have not repented, he is not ready yet to let off the pressure. You understand what's happening here? Joseph is, in a sense, testing their repentance. Have they repented of what they did? How would he know? Because how they speak about themselves, maybe their children, and particularly their father. And so how does Judah, he's got a real eloquent speech, and he basically says two or three or four times, this would bring my gray-haired old father down to the grave. And I can't do it. And Joseph says, right answer. And so he, he reveals himself to them. Who knows what they were thinking at that time? Like, oh, oh my gosh, we thought you were dead. We're guilty of murder. We find out we're not guilty of murder, or at least, right, kidnapping and selling somebody, but they figured he died. So they're imagining that this is really bad, and here is Joseph. And how does Joseph respond to him? He does at the end of the book, but you can also put this forward. God meant this for good. I know you meant it for evil, but God meant this for good. Joseph chose to forgive those who hurt him. Uh, on page five of your handout, on the left-hand side, this is from a long time ago. This is a sermon I did back in the old sanctuary when I was about 13, maybe 14. I finally was able to hire much better than myself, and so I don't do this anymore. I only had two points. First, how we handle relational pain is one mark of our maturity. Honey, what's the blank? What's the first blank? Choose. Choose to forgive those who have hurt you. And you say, well, why would I ever do that? First, what is biblical forgiveness? It's not a feeling. 
but a conscious choice to release the offender from the penalty and guilt of the offense. Why is it important to choose to forgive? Because Jesus commanded it, Matthew 18. Because God in Christ has forgiven us, Ephesians 4. Great verse, by the way. If you're looking to memorize things, that's a great verse to memorize. Um, We are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Because God can use your experience to help others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells those who have been, um, they've experienced um, conflict or suffering or hardship or something, he tells them, use that to encourage others who are coming up behind you. And so as he takes you through these things, you are in a position to help someone else who will experience something similar. And fourthly, because others will see Christ in you by the way you choose to forgive. C, how do I choose to forgive? I prepare my mind and heart by meditating on how God is sovereign, good, and powerful. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that in all things, how many things? Go ahead and circle all. And tomorrow you'll come up with what you believe is an exception to all. Well, Bill, all doesn't mean all. You don't know what that person did to me. So I'm just going to go back, and I would point it out to you and say, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, then this verse is yours. I would guess, it would be a very educated guess, every person in this room, in some form or fashion, over the course of their life at least one time, has been hurt by someone. Have you chosen to forgive them? Maybe it was a long time ago. I don't know. Maybe it was recent. Maybe it's ongoing. I don't know. But we need to choose to forgive. Um, which brings up another funny little thing, which we'll get to. Oh, gosh, I can't explain it right now, but I have to explain it. Mm. Uh, remember Peter feeling particularly benevolent one day, comes up to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive those who sin against me? Remember this? Seven full times. <laughs> and Jesus says, nah, 70 times seven. And you go, whoa, that's, that's 490. That's, that's a lot of times. It's actually anchored to something in the Old Testament that we'll get to, but it has to do with Israel skipping the sabbatic year, which occurred every seventh year. They were to let the land lie fallow, not cultivate it, not grow anything on it. And they let that happen for 70 cycles of seven. Jesus isn't trying to tell them a math problem. Hey, Peter, can you do this? 70 times seven, how many is that? He's connecting him back to, my father forgave your people 70 times every seventh year 
for the very same thing. When you've done what my father has done, let's talk. It's, 490 is not the point. There are 490 years involved in Israel's history in this, which is about half of their history. <laughs> the point is, same sin occurred every seven years, and it happened 70 times, and God forgave them every single time. How am I supposed to forgive? I'm supposed to forgive like God forgives. How do I do that? Great question. You don't. In fact, you can't because you don't want to. Oh, sorry. Am I meddling now? But the Holy Spirit can do it. Remember Ephesians 1.3 when we talked about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and that you have, you can write a check on that account. It's good for you. Remember we talked about that, maybe the first or second lesson? No? Oh, yes, we did. Remember, you can't forget anything in this class. Ephesians 1.3, we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every, it's like all, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's already in his bank account, and he gave us a checkbook and said, go ahead and write it. You can write that. Well, Lord, I don't feel like forgiving that person again for that. I know, Bill. Do you remember where you put your checkbook? There's still money in the bank. Go ahead and write another one. You need to forgive them. You need to forgive like I have forgiven you. Remember the times you tell me on time number 69 or time number 71? Yeah, Lord, I remember. That's all I'm asking. I want you to forgive like I forgive. We have to choose to forgive. Pray for the situation and the person involved. Let it go. Leave justice to God and desire mercy. And then repeat as necessary. How do I know if I've really forgiven someone? It's a great test. You want God's best for them rather than his worst. If you still want God's worst for them, you probably have some knee K-N-E-E, some knee work to do. And so would I. If God opened the door, you would consider reconciliation if there is repentance on their part. Joseph chose to forgive those who hurt him. We need to choose to forgive those who've hurt us, to forgive those who've hurt you. Key in that is you're willing, willing to take the next step. What is the next step? As God opens doors, seek reconciliation. Oh, look, that's the answer to the blank. Oh, good. As God opens doors, seek reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness takes one. It takes you. You choosing to forgive. Joseph chose to forgive his brothers. But he did not automatically reconcile with them. He first needed to see if they had repented. 
once they had repented, he is willing, he was willing to pursue reconciliation, but first had to come repentance on the other party's part. Guess what you cannot control? The other party. Have you lived long enough that you've gotten that one pretty well figured out? (laughs) The only thing I can do, the only thing I have control over in that manner of speaking is to choose to forgive. I don't get to choose or manipulate or control or force or nudge the other person to repent. That's between them and God. And sometimes I just have to wait. And when there is repentance, then there can be reconciliation. There was a fella that I had a great relationship with. Um, he was here for a while, and then he, he moved on to another town. And while we were here, he, uh, from time to time, would get a little ornery with me. Um, and um, he and I kind of struggled and he wound up he wound up leaving, and I saw him about uh, he came through town maybe five or six years later, and he called me out of the blue i didn't didn't know he was coming through town, called me out of the blue, said, "Hey, could I meet with you i'm like okay i'm willing." <laughs> I'm willing for reconciliation. Not real happy about it. Not really looking forward to it, but I'm willing, Lord. I'm willing. He came in and he sat down in my office and he said, I want to begin by apologizing. He said, I was fairly much of a B-U-T-T. And he said, I think you were trying to tell me this, but I wasn't listening. And I just want you to know, uh, it took me going to another place where the same kinds of things were done against me, and I finally learned the lesson, <laughs> and on my way back through town, I just seemed to stop by and say, I'm sorry. I, I was barely willing <laughs> for reconciliation, but I'd done, my, I'd done my best in the Spirit to forgive. But then God took care of it in God's time. That doesn't happen every time, but it happened this time, and... How sweet for two brothers to get to, to reconcile um, in the Lord that way. So it's not 100%. It's never been 100% for me. But the times that it does work, at times when it goes according to plan, God's plan, um, it's a sweet, sweet thing. So choose to forgive those who've hurt you. For some of you, that may be uh, years ago, decades ago, um, or whatever, uh, but as you leave here tonight, you, God may put somebody on your mind and remind you. Bill, Ephesians 4.32, forgive them as I have in Christ forgiven you. And he may remind you tonight of someone you need to forgive. And that person um, may not ever be able to come to your house or coffee or lunch or anything else but you need to forgive them. And then as God opens doors, if the people are living and if they just, uh, if they come, uh, seek reconciliation as Joseph did with his brothers.
So that's a little rabbit trail on forgiveness. Uh, again, something we've each encountered the need to do, I'm going to guess. Um, maybe we haven't had very much instruction in forgiving, and so here's one person's thoughts on how to forgive based on the life of Joseph. So how about Joseph's service? Joseph is serving Pharaoh. He has an intimate, well-known public relationship with God. He's an outstanding administrator. He serves God and Pharaoh with integrity of heart and skill of hands. And that's basically what Psalm 78, 72 says about David. But it's also true of Joseph. He served him with integrity of heart and skill of hands. And God uses him to preserve Jacob's family as well as to bless the Egyptians. And what God promised, God brought to pass. A great lesson or two from the life of Joseph. As long as God's leaders first become God's servants, um, this is not exactly taught to you in undergraduate or in a master's course or anywhere else. It's taught to you right here uh, in the Scripture as you look at somebody's life and just begin to put it together. And you see how these God's leaders, each one of them, first became God's servants. Uh, this is a great lesson if you have um, uh, you know, high schoolers, whether they're high, your high schoolers or your grandchildren who are high schoolers, if you have a good relationship with them, if you're kind of the matriarch or the patriarch. These are great lessons to teach. Joseph is a great leadership lesson to teach, a teacher on the dinner table. You could do it over two or three or four consecutive nights. You can use these notes. Tell them you, you did it. This is yours. And you just use it. Fine with me. I told you I've stolen it from so many people I can't even name them. You steal it from me. There we go. That's what it's all about. Use it. Truly, they need to know that before you lead, you must serve. You must learn to serve. And God is teaching Joseph. You can see the young, immature guy who wants to be this leader. And God says, give me about 13 years, and I'll make you a leader. But first, I'm going to teach you how to become a servant. And that's how God takes Joseph on this course. So God's leaders must first become God's servants. How is God preparing you? A little bit of application here. Has he enrolled you in 101, the pit? It's an unexpected place for you. And it's a place from which you can't rescue yourself. Be reminded, God has a plan for your life. So the only thing you can do is look up to him, seek him, and pray. There's really nothing else to do but pray. Are you in the pit right now? You'd like to know that, you know, next comes 201 and then comes 301. I'm not sure if they always go in that order. 
sorry. But you probably encounter them. 101, the pit. The key in that one is unexpected and a place from which you can't rescue yourself. Might even be, I would think if Joseph were here, a place that you really never wanted to go. I never thought I would be here, fill in the blank. I never thought this would be my situation, and I'm, in a sense, I'm caught. I'm in a cistern. I, I can't get out of this. Just to remind us to pray. Maybe he's enrolled you in 201 in Potiphar's house. He's teaching you how to handle temptation rightly. He's teaching you to maintain your witness. He's teaching you to control your tongue. That's what Potiphar's house is, where your world and the unbelieving world, um, it's like a Venn diagram. You know, they overlap each other. And so that the unbelieving world can see you and see that you're different. Um, Oh, yeah, good. Okay. Maybe he's enrolled you in 301, the prison. It's a place of waiting, feeling alone, out of sight, forgotten. It's the place where we learn the great gain of godliness with contentment. It's a place where we learn to desire God most and wait for release. Upperclassmen, those who are in 401, 501, 601, have unreservedly made themselves available to God for new service assignments. Okay? Key word in that is unreservedly. Everybody in here good with that? Go ahead and underline it. Pray it tomorrow. Lord, I unreservedly give myself to you tomorrow. Do with me as you choose. I am your servant. Ready for that one? Ready to pray that one and mean it? That's what upperclassmen are doing. Upperclassmen have fled temptation, absorbed unfairness, controlled their tongues, and still given their all every day. Upperclassmen have been faithful to serve and bless others wherever God has put them, even if it's out of sight. Upperclassmen have served with integrity the people in the places and positions God has chosen for them. And upperclassmen have come to the point where they can truly thank God for their past hardships and heartaches to say with Joseph that God meant it for good. Upperclassmen have been made ready to serve the king of kings. God's leaders must first become God's servants. If you will indulge me for another two or three minutes, let me show you some fun comparisons. I know you can see them on your handout, but I just want you to see these. On the left-hand side is Joseph. On the right-hand side is the Lord Jesus, both a father's beloved son, both hated by their brothers, both rejected by their brothers, 
One sold as a slave for 20 pieces of silver, the other for 30. Both a faithful servant who ministered to others. Both victorious over temptation. Both falsely accused, arrested, and treated unjustly. Both suffered before they entered their glory. They both went public at about the age of 30. Both exalted to a throne and made responsible for saving the nations. Both, ready for this one, both given a Gentile bride. You're like, what is going on that Joseph is marrying a Gentile? I don't know. You can write a paper on it. I'd love to read it. Probably a thousand different thoughts. But guess who else has married a Gentile bride? The Lord Jesus. Whoa. Both not recognized by their brothers on their first visit. Both sold as a slave and they met their brothers later as a king. Both put brothers through a trial for repentance. That's what the tribulation is about, which we've been doing Sunday mornings. Both revealed themselves, or Jesus will reveal himself to his brothers on their second visit. Is this too weird? There's two visits that Joseph has with his brothers. The first one, they don't know who he is. They don't get it. They get it on the second visit. It's almost like somebody meant to write the Bible. I don't know. (laughs) Who can make this stuff up? His brothers bowed before him, and Jesus, his brothers, will bow before him as well as everyone else. Both protected and preserved Israel all the days of their life. Jesus' never-ending life. few final comparisons. Joseph completely forgave his blood brothers. Jesus completely forgives his blood brothers. What is the end of Genesis chapter 50? Jacob is dead. The brothers go, "Uh uh-oh, now we're in for it, right? Now he's really going to let us have it. The reason he didn't before is because Jacob. Now Jacob's gone, and Joseph is going to be coming for us. So what do they do? They offer himself themselves as slaves to him, right? Let us work this off. Anything happening in your brain right now? They had already been forgiven and received into Joseph's family. They weren't slaves, and they didn't need to make themselves slaves. What did they need to do? Walk in their new identity. What does that mean for us? You tell me. Lord, I'll be your servant. Lord, I'll work for your forgiveness. I know I'm forgiven, but that was so bad. I'm going to try and work that one off. What, is, what are you learning from Joseph? Don't miss these big, big lessons. There's no working it off. You are fully accepted in the beloved. There's no more work that needs to be done. And could your work compare or add to the Lord Jesus' work? 
Really? Say no, because that's the right answer. <laughs> you need no other work. You don't have to work anything else off. This should be blowing your mind. If you have no other takeaway for tonight, leave tonight going, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that did and continues to save a wretch like me. He didn't just do it once and say, Bill, good job, get to work. I put you on the starting line, off you go. I'll see you at the end. Work hard, make me proud. You do not know how many Christians live their lives this way. I say to you in love, stop it. Rest in grace. It is an amazing thing. He completely forgave his blood brothers. He invited his brothers to live with him where he was, as Jesus does. He interceded for his brothers before Pharaoh. Jesus intercedes for us before his father. He's unashamed of his brothers before Pharaoh. The Lord Jesus is unashamed of his brothers before his father. He presented his brothers faultless to Pharaoh, and he presents us faultless, whoops, he presents us faultless to his father. Somebody meant to write this Bible this way, <laughs> beginning to end, and they leave us these little pictures along the way because if we knew our Old Testament, when we read our New, uh, our, if we knew our Old Testament, when we read our New Testament, we'd go, I think I've seen this before somewhere. <laughs> All these things that Jesus is doing, guess who else did them? Joseph. Where? In the last few pages of the first book of the Bible. Gah! This is so cool. I love the Bible and I love the Lord Jesus. Joseph gave his brothers preferential treatment out of the overflow of his greatness. Jesus gives us preferential treatment out of the overflow of his greatness. Joseph, his authority provided continual access to the throne for his brothers. Jesus has authority, his authority provides continual access to the throne for his brothers. What a great book, Genesis, the family tree of faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whatever became of all these things, I gave you a little book chart at the end that in a certain other way summarizes what Genesis is doing. We anticipate a covenant people in 2 through 11. We establish this covenant people in 12 through 36. And then beginning in chapter 37 to the end of Genesis, we incubate this covenant people in Egypt so they can grow from a family to a nation. And he has protected them down in Egypt, and that is his plan. And so God moves the covenant family of faith to Egypt to await his call in the book of Exodus. But we're going to do the book of Job next week. Why? Perhaps the book of Job is the first book written. But Genesis 1 through 11 comes before Job. So we did Genesis, and then we'll do Job. It'll be a lot of fun. I guarantee you, you do not know what Job is talking about. Come next week, you will be blessed. Guaranteed. Read Job 1 and 2, but a word to the wise, keep going. 
Keep going. I know it's poetry. I know it's Eastern poetry. It's hard to read. I know it. I know it. Do it. You can do it. If you've never read through the Old Testament, this is your time. You can do it this time with us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. I pray that your spirit would take it and sink it deep into our minds and hearts, please. And don't just let it sit there. But we pray that it would spring forth new life and change in us. Make us more like our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, and we pray for it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in a week.